Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond Farside Chats. Today I am joined by Vincent van der Mappe. He is the manager of the Cheetah Metapopulation Project, which does so much crucial work in managing and conserving Africa's cheetahs. And we are going to be chatting about cheetah as a species, the efforts being made to protect and conserve them, and all the stories and challenges that come with that mandate. Vincent, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much, uh, Josh. It's uh, great to be here. And uh, hopefully we can uh, clarify some things with regards to uh, wild cheetah management and the potential reintroduction into India. Yeah, really looking forward to it. So I think maybe, Vincent, one of the best places to start is with the question of what is the current conservation status of cheetahs and what challenges are they facing? Well, basically, um, wild cheetahs have been extirpated from 91% of their historical distribution range. Um, They used to be found right across Southern Africa, East Africa, West Africa, North Africa, the Middle East and uh, South Asia. Uh, in fact, they went right up into 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 modern day Russia and to small portions of Turkey. Um, it was a, a very widespread species um, until thirteen thousand years ago, when humans started practicing agriculture. And uh, you can see quite clearly if you look at a, a map of the world, agriculture started in the Middle East, and this is obviously where the destruction of wild cheetah populations uh, uh, was initiated. And as farming spread into North Africa and into West Africa 7,000 years ago, and then into East Africa 2,500 years ago, only arriving in Southern Africa 1,500 years ago, slowly wild cheetah populations were, were, were decimated. And that was mainly because, of course, these, these, these cheetahs came into conflict with the, the newly arrived farmers, um, human-wildlife conflict. Uh, cheetahs obviously kill sheep goats and young cattle. And, um, and then, of course, urbanization and agriculture. So there was a, a loss of, of safe space for wild cheetah populations. Um, some events that really uh, further triggered their decline was the arrival of the, the horse. I mean, horses can run much further than, than cheetahs, so they were more easily chased down. And, of course, the horse coupled with the rifle spelt the end for many wild cheetah populations uh, worldwide. Because agriculture only arrived in southern Africa 1,500 years ago, we ha- we are the conservation stronghold for cheetah. We still have 4,000 cheetahs in, 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 in mainly in Namibia, Botswana, and, and northern South Africa. Uh, so there's such low human densities in these parts of the world that we still have 4,000 cheetahs there. Then there's uh, about 15 subpopulations that persist in Kenya, where they, sorry, in, in East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, where they're relatively well protected by tourism. West Africa is not looking so good at the moment with the political instability. Uh, there's only about 250 out there. And then, of course, a tiny remnant population in, in, in Iran of about 20 individuals of Asiatic cheetahs that are, are hanging in there. That's really interesting, and I I hadn't ever thought about the connection between the arrival of the horse and further extermination of the cheetah population. That was really interesting. Thanks for that. And those sort of challenges that you've spoken into with respect to human-wildlife conflict, are those 
the kinds of challenges facing them today or are there other challenges as well that the, the cheetahs of today are facing? Yes, I mean, the entire global population that persists, there's still about 7,000 cheetahs left in the wild. Um, you know, all of those populations remain in decline. Some are stable, um, but, but, but most of them, the vast majority remain in decline because obviously human populations continue to increase. Uh, rapid, uh, you know, urbanization is, is on the increase. Agriculture is on the increase in Africa. Um, so the only growing wild cheetah population that persists is the fenced population in Southern Africa. So what fencing basically does is it is, uh, eliminates humans from the equation. So humans uh, and their livestock and agriculture are fenced out and, um, and cheetah populations are fenced in. So, so this, this means that you eliminate the major threat to wild cheetah populations through fencing. It's, not, it's very frowned upon, you know, especially in the context of, of the current paradigm for conservation. You know, currently the coexistence model is, is advocated so, um, you know, fencing is going against the current conservation paradigm, but it is proving to be the most effective technique to, to grow wild cheetah populations. And right now, uh, fenced populations persist in southern Africa and in Malawi. Interesting. Thanks, Vincent. And why, why are cheetah such an important species to conserve? And, and what crucial roles do they play in the ecosystems which they do exist in? Well, the cheetah is a, a, a top-order predator. It plays an important ecological role in regulating uh, prey populations. Obviously, uh, cheetahs exert different pressures on prey populations compared to, to leopards, lions, wild dogs. They, they, they feed on prey species that belong to different weight ranges. So they exert different evolutionary pressures on, on the prey spectrum. Most importantly, uh, cheetahs are cursorial predators. So, so they actively identify weaker genetics uh, in prey populations and eliminate those genetics. Uh, this, this makes them different from ambush predators. Uh, ambush predators also play an important role in regulating prey populations, but they 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 take the first animal that comes past them regardless of its fitness. So, so that makes cheetahs more important in retaining healthy genetics in, in prey populations, in eliminating weaker genetics. That's also inc in incredible to hear about the fact that, you know, you might have these other predators which can sort of catch whatever comes across them, but the cheetah focus so clearly and so distinctly on the weaker animals within the herd or whatever prey species they may be hunting at the time. That, that's correct, yes. And uh, other cursorial predators that would do the same would be wolves um, and wild dogs. They, they also play an important role in, in eliminating those weaker genetics, uh, whereas the ambush predators, um, you know, they, they specialize more in, in, in regulating uh, prey numbers, but also from time to time will um, obviously identify uh, a weaker individuals, but less so than, than cursorial predators. And, and Vincent, you've, um, you've already mentioned the really fragmented distribution of cheetah across their current range. Um, of, of the range that is available to them today, what kind of landscapes, habitats, and different reserves um, 
are available to them. So one of the uh, misconceptions uh, with wild cheetah popul- with with cheetahs is that they are uh, an open grassland, open savanna specialist. And uh, managing the meadow population over the past twelve years, um, you know, I've quickly realised that that certainly isn't the case. Uh, the major limiting factor for 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 wild cheetah populations is prey availability. Habitat is not a major limiting factor for cheetahs. Obviously, you won't find them in in extremely dramatic mountain ranges because you simply won't find suitable prey up there. But but the one habitat where you where you won't find cheetahs would be you know tropical forests um, because they can't make use of their their, their their main talent. And cheetahs are a specialized uh, high chase. You know they they, they specialized in the, in the way that they catch their animals. They use they catch their animals through high speed chases. Uh, they've evolved this incredible speed over millions of years. And um, so if they cannot utilize that ability, then then, um, you know, uh, they move into more preferable habitats. But uh, we've got cheetahs in thicket vegetation in the Eastern Cape uh, where they persist and hunt very successfully in that thicker vegetation type. We know that they occurred there historically. The historical evidence for their presence there is, is, is un, you know, is, is crystal clear. And they also persist in, um, you know, a drier desert habitats. They do exceptionally well in the semi-deserts of the Karoo, in the deserts of the Kalahari. Uh, water is not a major limiting factor for them. They do derive sufficient uh, water from the blood of the, the, the prey animals that they feed on. And for that reason, you'd find them further away from river systems in, in, in drier habitats compared to leopards, which are more water-dependent. You find them, of course, in, in savanna habitats, in places like Zululand, the low felt, where they coexist with other uh, competing predators that persist in these environments at high densities. And you find them in, in mountainous areas. I mean, we've noticed um, in Mountain Zebra National Park, um, you know, once they depleted um, the prey items in their preferred open habitats, they immediately moved onto the mountain slopes where they s- shifted their hunting techniques to ambush uh, kudus on mountain slopes. And it's really interesting to spot them up up in these, you know, relatively rocky, uh, quite dramatic mountain ranges. And they, they hunted kudu there with, without troubles. So they are extremely adaptable when it comes to different uh, habitat types. And we move them. I mean, we've coordinated over 360 cheetah relocations between different habitat types. And habitat has never been a limiting factor uh, more recently, we reintroduced them into uh, coastal dune forests in 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 in, in Mozambique, and and you know it was the strangest thing uh, uh, following these cheetah, tracking them with telemetry in very dense and thick habitat, and finding them on red diker kills, and and observing them spending most of the time in relatively thick habitats. It's uh, they are a, a truly remarkable, a, a remarkably adaptable species. It's so intriguing to hear about their adaptability because so often you do think of a cheetah as an open savanna grassland landscape predator. And how does, you've already alluded to the scattered distribution of of cheetahs across their range and different reserves, varying habitats. How does this scattered distribution of cheetah affect their conservation and the management of the population? It severely affects their their long-term persistence. 
Um, so historically, wild cheetah populations would have been uh, connected across massive landscapes and there would have been natural metapopulation dynamics at play, dispersal, immigration, immigration, and uh, they, they, they would have um, easily come across uh, potential mates in this large connected population. What we have now is, is a number of, of isolated populations persisting. And, and in most of these population cheetah numbers are, are well below 50 individuals, well below genetically viable population size. So, um, and also what we've observed with cheetahs is that they continue to, to experience these um, boom-bust phases in all remnant populations. So the metapopulation itself is comprised of 69 reserves, the fenced metapopulation in southern Africa. And uh, in that metapopulation, you'll have about 15 reserves, metapopulation reserves, where cheetahs are doing exceptionally well. And we'll remove cheetahs from those what we call source reserves and relocate them to sink reserves. So uh, it really is a small number of source reserves, a small number of particularly fit and fertile cheetahs on the source reserves that are sustaining the population on, on the sinks, sink reserves. And over time, it's, it's really interesting to see how uh, individual populations within the metapopulation will go through source phases and will go through sink phases. So, for example, at, when we initiated this project, a major source population was Sunborna Game Reserve. Um, between 2012 and 2018, provided over 20 cheetahs to surplus cheetahs to the metapopulation. Uh, Mountain Zebra National Park is another example. Uh, provided over 25 uh, cheetahs to the metapopulation. And then after that, went through a sink phase where they were in turn now reliant on other newly created source reserves to supply them. So each individual reserve goes through boom and bust phases with, with regards to, 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 to their cheetah population. And when they're in that boom phase, you've got to move them from that habitat when they reach carrying capacity to the sink reserves. And in 10 years' time, that sink reserve could in turn become a source reserve. So it's really a metapopulation dynamics at play and if you manage your population uh, um, uh, correctly and uh, you're proactive with regards to wild cheetah management, then you can achieve population growth. Now, what's happening in the rest of Africa is there's no management. So each one of these reserves is effectively an isolated island of cheetahs. And if that little island of 20 to 50 cheetahs goes through a sink, well, through a, a bust phase, then, then there's no natural supplementation from outside and it's very difficult for that population to recover. So what we've realized is that in the context of, of, of the 21st century, wildlife management will be absolutely critical to the long-term conservation of, of wild cheetah populations. And that's because humans have totally transformed the landscape. Uh, we've, 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 we've farmed the land, we've tilled the land, we utilize 90% of the, the space to ourselves and we've, all that we are left with are these small little fragments of, of wild, natural habitat where cheetahs persist. And we have to responsibly manage those populations that, that are persisting. Thanks, Vincent. That was a really in-depth look into to even some of the, the other questions that I have lined up for you. And I think something that would be really useful for us to go um, to take one brief step back and ask, could you explain what is the concept of a metapopulation? What is it and why is it so important for your management of cheetah specifically? 
So basically, a, a meta population is a population of populations. So because humans have transformed the landscape and we have all these fragmented, isolated cheetah populations, which number between three and, and 40, you know, all of these populations individually are not genetically viable in the long term. We know that genetic ev evidence accumulated from 40 years of genetic research across many different plant and animal taxa have, have demonstrated that inbreeding uh, in the wild is a serious threat. Um, if we want our populations to persist through the next few hundred thousand years, and cheetahs, are, you know, the modern day cheetah has only persisted for about 600,000 years. Technically, it should persist for another 400,000 years before it either goes extinct or evolves into something else. So, so if you want those cheetahs to persist for the next 400,000 years, they need sufficient genetic diversity to do that. So that genetic diversity will give them sufficient disease-fighting ability. So within your, your DNA, you have uh, an MHC complex, a complex of genes that act together to fight diseases. And if your genetic diversity at that MHC complex is, is not sufficiently diverse, then you're not going to be able to, to fight off these diseases when you encounter them. And you can just imagine in the next 400,000 years, cheetahs are inevitably going to encounter diseases and they have to have sufficient genetic diversity to do that. And not only fighting diseases, but also who knows what changes in habitat and climate await in the next 400,000 years. We need to make sure that our cheetahs have sufficient genetic diversity to adapt to those changes that will inevitably take place. So basically, each of these populations needs to have individuals swapped between them um, to ensure that that genetic diversity is maintained and, if possible, actually increased. Um, so a metapopulation, the whole concept comes from butterfly research in Scandinavia, where butterflies would fly between little forest patches in an agricultural landscape, and then they do well in some of the patches, they wouldn't do well in other patches. So you had your source patches, you had your sink patches. Then you had your patches with, with, where these butterflies were temporarily extinct. But overall, over time, the metapopulation, the natural metapopulation remained connected and viable as a whole. Um, so, so basically, um, historically, the cheetah populations would have been connected through dispersal, immigration, immigration, and now we have to implement human-mediated dispersal to ensure their persistence. Because if we don't intervene, then we're going to lose uh, at least uh, 60 to 70% of, of remnant wild cheetah populations in the next uh, uh, two to 300 years. Thanks, Vincent. That was really interesting. I think a few of the really important take-homes from how you just defined it was the, the fact that a population is made up of multiple metapopulations within it and that there is, it is important that there is connectivity between the populations and that there is, between each metapopulation, you'll find slight differences. And even I really enjoyed your um, the thought of thinking of them as, as some as sink populations and some as source populations. It really gives me this sort of vast overview of you almost as this uh, conductor or uh, this person moving pieces on a chessboard to try and make everything sort of connect and come together. As the manager of the Cheetah Metapopulation Initiative, where do you 
operate and which cheetah meta populations are you currently managing? At this point in time, most of our work is 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 limited to South Africa, um, because it's a it's a highly developed um, African nation. The landscape has has been subject to a good um, you know thousand years of of agriculture. Because our human population numbers are are relatively high in South Africa, there's been a necessitated fencing. So right now, uh, 95% of the reserves that we work with are totally fenced. So by law in South Africa, if you want to reintroduce uh, a, wild, a, a wild predator, lion, leopard, cheetah, hyena, by law, you have to fence. So we started off working exclusively with a fenced population. Uh, in 2020, we started to attempt our first uh, reintroductions into unfenced systems. So we continued with a fenced approach into Malawi. Malawi has exceptionally high human densities. So there we had to fence before the cheetahs were reintroduced into, into those national parks. But more recently, we moved into Zambia and Mozambique where there is no fencing. And um, so, so even though these reserves are fenced, they're still isolated from other protected areas. The cheetahs can't move out of there without hitting towns and cities and agricultural landscapes. So, so we have more recently started moving into Zambia, Mozambique and attempting our first reintroductions into unfenced systems. And it's proved to be, to be very challenging um, because inevitably those cheetahs are going to come into conflict with, with humans. And uh, so you mentioned that you mainly, mainly work with fence reserves and it was, um, it was interesting to hear about the, the other challenges you've experienced in unfenced reserves. But what are some of the main challenges, besides maintaining genetic diversity, what are some of the main challenges that you are facing managing cheetahs and fenced reserves, like, for example, and beyond Pinda Private Game Reserve? Um, so cheetahs do incredibly well in these fence-protected areas. So as you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I serve essentially as a control tower you know, directing the flow of cheetah between all these protected areas. Um, right now, you know, despite the presence of competing predators in these fence protected areas, cheetahs are doing well. So our population, our fence meta population is growing by 8% per annum. So, so we're reaching capacity in South Africa. So the major challenge is to identify new safe space for the release of our cheetahs. And that's proving difficult because, you know, fencing is, is, is largely confined to, to South Africa. So now we're having to take these uh, wild, ecologically functional cheetahs into unfenced systems and attempt to grow their population numbers there. And that is proving very challenging because cheetahs are a wide-ranging species. You know, especially in the first six months post-release, when you, uh, you release them into a new habitat, they are going to explore. And because they haven't been present in that habitat for, for a very long period of time, typically between 10 and 50 years, they don't have a communication network in place in the, at that reintroduction site. So, for example, in Mozambique, we reintroduced 20 cheetahs into 900,000 hectares. How are these cheetahs going to find each other there? Because cheetahs were extirpated there about 80 years ago. So when cheetahs still persisted in that environment – they had dedicated communication hubs, normally a prominent tree in the landscape or a prominent rock in the landscape. 
where the cheaters, each individual cheater visits, visits that communication hub every week. So, and he, that, that cheater, whether it's male or female, will go there and it will defecate and it will scent mark and it will advertise its presence in the landscape. And that sort of keeps the cheetah populations there. Males want to be around females because they're programmed to copulate. Females want to be in the presence of males because they're also evolutionarily programmed to, to, to procreate. And uh, what we find when we release them into these unfenced systems is there's no communication network and they don't find each other. And they roam widely, especially in the first six months. I mean, we've had some cheetahs released into Mozambique that have simply walked back to South Africa. Uh, we've had some cheetahs in Mozambique that have walked into cities. And uh, once they, when they hit the outskirts of the, these um, urban areas, they obviously turn around and try and walk back. But obviously, prey populations have been decimated uh, in human environments. And some of them, before they can get back to um, a protected area, they, they literally starve. Uh, snaring is a major issue. Um, obviously, snares are not put out to, um, you know, uh, capture cheetah for, the, 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 for bushmeat, but uh, they are indirectly captured by snares and gin traps. Um, so so in these reserves, in these open systems where we've reintroduced cheetahs in, in Mozambique and Zambia, we've had terrible... Um, uh, losses due to snaring. And um, even within some of our fenced reserves in South Africa, there's one particular reserve in Zululand where, where we've lost 21 cheetahs to snaring. So, so that is one of the, the major, major challenges that we are facing at the moment. Uh, overpopulation and low success at reintroducing into unfenced systems. And, and how would you overcome some of these challenges? I mean, you've mentioned issues with... Um, like there, there is no other way to overcome the lack of communication hubs in these reserves other than introducing cheetah. So that totally makes sense. But how would you overcome issues of cheetah moving far out of the range in which you've reintroduced them or issues with, uh, with snaring? And then I guess also like another challenge is actually just moving a cheetah. So what does it even take to, to move a cheetah? Yeah, it's a, it's a major challenge, you know, um, just to give you some context. Between 1965 and, and 1992, just over 200 wild cheetahs were reintroduced into reserves in South Africa. And seven of the eight reintroduction efforts failed completely. Pinda was the, the very first uh, successful wild cheetah reintroduction anywhere in the world. So even within the fence systems of South Africa, we really struggled initially because we didn't know anything about cheetah reintroduction. And, and we learned some hard lessons. We learned the importance of bomers and maintaining good uh, fences and, and good post-release monitoring. Now, when we reintroduce into the unfenced systems, uh, you know, we've experienced tremendous losses. Um, uh, what we find is it's, it's, it's just a numbers game. You know, so if you keep persisting and, and, and we have this growing metapopulation, I mean, we've got 40 animals per year that we can comfortably make available for reintroduction efforts. And if you just keep persisting and keep on making these animals available for these reintroductions into the bigger open unfenced systems, eventually the communication hubs will become um, established and uh, core, core areas for cheetah conservation uh, will become established. Um, what you can do uh, to, to prevent the wide-ranging behavior is, is have uh, helicopters and veterinarians on standby, and we've done this in Mozambique. 
Uh, we literally have uh, three helicopters on site and uh, we have a certain budget available for, 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 for monitoring the cheetahs using those helicopters. And we have a, a vet permanently on standby to return the escapees and bring them back. I mean, you can imagine the costs involved are just absolutely massive. So it's, it's, it, and the, the losses, I mean, it sounds so unethical just to effectively just um, release large numbers of cheetahs into a system where we know we're going to experience these high mortalities. So, um, you know, the snaring is something you can do very little about un, un, unless you s- start fencing and fence communities out, which is, is, is certainly not popular. So, I mean, yeah, what you, we, we've, we're investigating the use of radars at detecting fences at the moment, um, finding more money to employ more uh, anti-poaching units to, to eliminate fences from the landscape. But effectively, you know, there's very little that you can do apart from, uh, you know, just uh, keep, keep keeping on bashing away and, and also just learning how to, coex- to get co- large carnivores to coexist with humans, you know, and uh, investigating uh, ways to to make protected areas more economically viable, so that they benefit uh, local communities, you know. And and South Africa is a classic example of this, you know. In South Africa, starting off with Pinda in in the early nineties, you know, we've established all these uh, protected areas across the landscape, and we found that um, ecotourism can actually outcompete agriculture. From a financial perspective, I mean, a reserve like Pinda, for example, makes more money than it would if you switched it back to cattle farming. So, so just using the the uh, you know using ecotourism as a a useful uh, a model, you know, to increase our protected area network. I mean, I, I see that as the way forward in future for for effectively protecting wildlife populations. And you've mentioned, Vincent, that Pinda was one of the well, the first reserve to to reintroduce um, cheetah again. And what is the significance of Pinda's cheetah population in the broader context of the metapopulation um, initiative and management that you do? Well, Pinda have given us a, a very effective template for managing wild cheetah populations. Uh, they have a, a fantastic infra- infrastructure. They've got a, a good, well-maintained fences that are inspected on a weekly basis. They've got a, a, a very good cheetah boma setup, uh, you know, so that uh, any cheetahs coming into Pinda, uh, you know, can settle into their new environment for a short period of time, breaking their homing instinct, breaking that instinct to walk back to where they originally come from. Um, but the, 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 the ma- major uh, tool that uh, Pinda have in their arsenal is, is effective management and monitoring. So Pinda cheetahs are, they have a dedicated monitoring team. The cheetahs are collared. They regularly observed. They have a very effective um, um, liaison between the monitoring team and the, uh, you know, the um, uh, uh, safari guides who go out on a, a daily taking guests out to see the cheetah. Any sightings are immediately reported. That information is documented. They maintain a very good uh, cheetah tracking tool so they know exactly how many cheetahs they have on their property. They can immediately uh, detect when there is a surplus of cheetahs. And, um, you know, this obviously can have knock-on effects on prey populations. So whenever Pinda has a surplus, 
They make these animals available to the meta population. Whenever the monitoring team on Pinda detects potential for inbreeding, they contact the meta population managers and they bring in new unrelated individuals to ensure that the population remains genetically healthy. So it's very effective demographic and genetic management that has been the, the secret to success at, at Pinda. Of course, Pinda cheetah are highly desirable because they are well managed from a genetic perspective, but also because they are tourist friendly. I mean, these cheetahs bump into uh, game drive vehicles on a regular basis. And this is great because what they're effectively doing is they, um, you know, they're paying their rent through good game viewing. You know, if you eliminated tourism uh, from uh, on Pinda, those cheetahs wouldn't have any form of economic value, then the place would probably very quickly resort back to livestock farming. So uh, panda cheetahs are, are, are fantastic animals. They have high tourism value. They know lion, they know leopard, they know hyena, they know competing predators. So they are truly tough, ecologically functional wild cheetahs. And they represent the epitome of a, a a, 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 a meta population cheetah in that regard. That is what we are, are aiming for, the cheetahs that we have on Pinda. So that was a really lovely overview. Thanks, Vincent. And so would you say that besides all of the really important monitoring that you mentioned, is, it, is that knowledge of other predators really something that's quite crucial when it comes to relocating or translocating a cheetah. The areas that you are translocating them to, particularly in some of the other ones you're, uh, you, you've been active in, like Mozambique and Zambia, are there other predators in these areas too, which the cheetah would have to be wary of? Yes, absolutely. Um, so so uh, more than 50% of natural mortality in wild cheetah populations is due to competing predators. So the cubs are killed by brown hyenas, spotted hyenas, leopards, lion, wild dogs, jackals, even uh, elephants trample them from time to time. Vultures spot them from the air and come down and kill them. Um, you know, so the cubs are highly susceptible to predation, but um, and, and therefore cheetah moms have to find good den sites to effectively hide them away uh, from these competing predators. And these den sites are often in very thick habitat or in riverine dense riverine vegetation or on mountain slopes. But once the cubs get through that initial danger period and they are, become mobile, then they get their first exposure to these competing predators. And their mothers are exceptionally good at training them on how to avoid the competing predators. So cheetahs have evolved a strategy of, of giving birth to uh, 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 big litters, uh, much bigger litters than you'll see in lions and leopards because most of these cubs are inevitably killed by uh, competing predators. But when they see their fellow siblings being killed by lion, leopard, hyena, this knowledge of these uh, uh, dangers out there becomes imprinted on them and they become a lot more vigilant when they move through the bush. So they constantly, if you watch a cheetah on Pinda moving through the bush, it's constantly turning around, looking around it. It's very cognizant of its environment. And then when, so that animal is 100% ecologically functional. That's what you, you, you want from a wild cheetah. Uh, you want an animal that is highly alert to the presence of competing predators that actively kill them. And when we move these highly vigilant alert cheetahs to new protected areas where they bump into lion, leopard, uh, spotted hyena, wild dogs, they come with that ingrained knowledge of these predators. So they are aware of these dangers. And more than uh, you know, 95% of our uh, reintroduction sites have 
these competing predators. So yes, uh, uh, you know, we only have about two or three what we call soft reserves that have no competing predators at all. So those are wild cheetahs running around with no hyena leopard lion coming after them. And, um, and uh, you know, when we take those soft cheetahs uh, to a reserve like Pinda, inevitably they, they really do struggle. And if I may also ask you to touch on what does it actually take to move a cheetah? You, you've mentioned all of, all of this moving, translocating, metapopulation management. What goes into a, a major translocation effort? So there's quite a lot of uh, bureaucracy involved. Uh, obviously, cheetahs are highly desired as pet animals. So uh, governments make a concerted effort to implement legislation to prevent wild cheetahs from going into captivity. So, so we first of all have to get permits, a permit from the receiving reserve, an import permit, and then a permit from the donating reserve. And uh, once those permits are issued, um, uh, hopefully the, you know, the paperwork can be sorted quickly, but it typically takes between you know, six weeks and a month to get that uh, paperwork in order. Then you've got to bring in the veterinarians to mobilize those wild cheetahs. Obviously, you can't catch them without them being immobilized. And this is where we find cheetah are particularly susceptible to immobilization complications. Um, you know, we, we lose 7% of the wild cheetah that we relocate to immobilization complications. They don't like being chased. They're easily stressed. And um, capturing cheetah in the wild is extremely challenging. You have to get the veterinarian to within 20, 30 meters. Many of our cheetahs are, are so wild that we have to capture them utilizing helicopters. So that is the major challenge is capturing them and getting them into the transport crates out without the cheetahs overheating or, or, or um, you know, suffering from chronic stress to the extent that it actually kills them. So, um, yes, and then once you've got them in the crates and they've cooled down and they've been reversed, uh, you know, the, the, the mobilization drugs have been reversed, then you have the long journey between the, the, the population reserves. And these drives can last anything from 45 minutes to 55 hours. Our longest relocation was between South Africa and Malawi, where we relocated an individual 55 hours over you know, three days. Um, so yes, it's a, it's a, but once they're in the crates and they've recovered from their mobilization, they generally transport quite well. They're relatively relaxed inside the crates, Unlike lion and leopard, they, they, they pretty much sit still and, uh, uh, you know, don't make too much of a noise. They don't jump around too much in the crates and uh, they, they relocate relatively well after you've, you've immobilized them. Um, so, yes, it's a massive logistical operation, uh, but we've had great success, you know, with the, the 360 cheetah relocations that we've coordinated over the past um, uh, uh, 12 years. Thanks for that insight, Vincent. It was really interesting to hear of all the bits and pieces that go into simply moving one cheetah um, from one reserve to another or from one country to another. Now, our, our last question for the, for the podcast is, um, you know, arguably the biggest news in the world regarding cheetah conservation right now is the translocation from, of cheetah from Southern Africa to India and their introduction to Kuno National Park. You know, the, the move has produced some robust debate over the past few months. So I wanted to ask what your involvement is in the project and can you give us an outline of the project's short and long-term goals and some of the challenges it may face along the way? Yes. Um, so this is an intergovernmental project between uh, the South African government and the Indian government. 
the Indian government is aware that we have this growing wild cheetah population in southern Africa. Uh, they're also aware that it's extremely challenging to reintroduce cheetahs. Uh, we learned the hard way in South Africa. Uh, you know, we know that 200, exactly, I think it's just over 200 wild cheetahs were lost between 1965 and 1992 when we were learning the process of cheetah reintroduction. As a result of the lessons that we learned in that very difficult process, we have now uh, increased our meadow population from, you know, the first few founders on Pinda, which was just 12 animals, to a current meadow population of 500 individuals. So they, they've realized that, um, you know, there's absolutely no way that they can reintroduce the correct Asiatic subspecies. There's just 20 cheetahs left in Iran. Since the 1970s, the Iranian governments and the Indian governments have been speaking about, you know, potentially sourcing cheetah from Iran and swapping Asiatic lions from India. India is the only country in Asia that still has remnant lion population. So, so essentially swapping lions for cheetahs. This just never came to fruition. It never managed to uh, reach an agreement. And also it, it, it's ethically prohibitive, you know, to, to remove animals from a small population in Iran and reintroduce them into India because, you know, you're compromising the Iranian population. And secondly, we know that it takes many hundreds of cheetah to get a reintroduction right into a country. Sourcing from Iran was absolutely out. So the major controversy is that they effectively are going to be reintroducing the incorrect subspecies and African subspecies. The closest African subspecies to the Asiatic cheetah is the West African cheetah. And I mean, it's just absolutely impossible from a logistical and a bureaucratic perspective to go into countries like Chad, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, uh, Northern Benin, and to, and to source cheetahs from places like that. I mean, there's a, you know, a, a lot of extremist activity in those areas and the cheetah numbers are in decline there. So it's also ethically prohibitive, but also logistically and bureaucratically impossible to source from those countries. India has therefore turned to Southern Africa because they know they're going to need a, a regular supply of cheetahs from South Africa to establish a population in India. So India, obviously, obviously cheetahs occurred there historically. The last wild cheetah that was directly observed in India was, you know, shot in, in 1948. There were reported sightings until the late 1960s, but it was officially actually declared extinct in the early 50s. They have approached South Africa for our wild cheetahs. It's the incorrect subspecies. Uh, but, uh, you know, it still serves the same ecological role. We've learned from our experiences moving cheetahs in southern Africa that they adapt quite easily to new habitats. The Akuno National Park is very much a bushveld savanna reserve. Uh, there's many species in, in Kuno that uh, plant species that, are, that you'll find in Zululand. Uh, it was a remarkable. Uh, some of the grasses are exactly the same. Uh, you know, you've got your Zizifus, you've got your Acacia nilotica. Um, it was interesting to see the overlap in plant diversity and the habitat structure is, is very similar, if not almost the same. So, so obviously the, there's sufficient prey in these reserves. There's spotted deer, which is of the right size for cheetah. They have 9,000 spotted deer in, in Kuno National Park. One of the major concerns with Kuno is the high leopard density. at 75,000 hectares, which means it's three times the size of Pinda. You know, they have 90 leopards there. So leopards are responsible for about 9% of cheetah mortalities. So inevitably, we are going to lose cheetahs to, to predation by leopards. 
The other major concern, of course, is that Kuno is not fenced at all. So India has a completely different uh, philosophy to, to wildlife management. They do still try and retain connectivity between their protected areas. They do still have wildlife corridors that are actively utilized by species such as tigers. In the early 2000s, a tiger actually naturally moved through Kuno. So, so they haven't resorted to fencing. What they do have there, uh, instead of utilizing wildlife fences, they have social fences. So they have a compensation scheme for wildlife, uh, for livestock losses. So basically, if, if you're a farmer on the outskirts of Kuno National Park and a cheetah comes in and it eats one of your goats or one of your sheep, the government will reimburse you, you know, so you'll submit a claim, you'll uh, liaise with the local forestry officer, he will inspect the, the carcass of the, of, of the animal that you've lost, and you'll be paid out within two weeks. So they have a compensation scheme in place, something that we don't have in place in Africa, anywhere in Africa. So this gives us hope that the coexistence model could work for cheetah in India, you know, we know that it has worked for their tiger numbers. Their tiger numbers have increased from 1,400 in 2006 to a current population of 3,000 tigers. So the social fences and the coexistence approach definitely has worked in India. And we've got a lot to learn from them in that regard. But it's going to be extremely challenging. We're going to have to send at least 100 cheetahs in the next 10 years to India. Mistakes will be made. Animals will be lost. And um, it's important that everyone involved in this reintroduction is fully cognizant of, of this. Um, you know, we know that even with our fenced reserves in South Africa, we, we had sorry, 27 years of failure before we got cheetah reintroduction right. But in the long term, we can be quite confident that if you had to visit India as a tourist in 500 years' time, they will have a, a cheetah population established there. The resources have been made available by the Indian government to do this. And you'll probably find a good population of up to 500 individuals in India in 500 years' time. We're just going to have to go through an extremely painful period initially with these initial reintroductions. And if we can burn through that, then I'm sure that we can achieve success with the reintroduction in India um, within the next two decades. Thank you so much for that, for that overview, Vincent. Again, it's lovely to hear you speak into sort of the long-term plan, the challenges that you might face, but also that there are some things in place to deal with those challenges, like the compensation um, of, uh, of losses to livestock and the fact that, um, that India are obviously uh, also desperate to make this, this whole translocation work. Uh, it's been so lovely uh, hearing from you about the, the overview of Cheetah, their history, the challenges facing them, but also the incredible work that yourself and your team and reserves are doing to protect them. And something that I'd, I'd like to, to uh, briefly go back to is your, you know, your mentions of sometimes when you hear about how much goes into a Cheetah translocation and what can go wrong, the complications involved that it may even seem unethical, but, you know, at the end of the day, the alternative is extinction, which I think everyone feels is simply not an option. And the concept that you brought in of persistence, you know, the, the, the persistence that you show and all the reserves show will ensure the long-term persistence of the species if we are willing to put in the effort to conserve, translocate, reestablish then the persistence of the species will hopefully be reached. Absolutely, absolutely, Josh. And, um, you know, the real heroes in, in this conservation story are, are the people that are creating safe space. 
It's all of those uh, private game reserves and national parks across South Africa. You know, 90% of these reserves were historically utilized for agriculture. And a lot of determined people have gone into these environments. They've cleared the land of the livestock. They've cleared the crops. They've uh, uh, removed all the remnants of human infrastructure. And they've reestablished not only cheetahs, but other historically occurring mammals, you know. And what we've seen in post-apartheid South Africa is a remarkable wildlife recovery. It will be very unfortunate if we keep this model to ourselves, you know. It's actually, it's, it's, it's imperative that we share our experiences from South Africa with our colleagues in other countries so that they can also initiate and oversee the recovery of wildlife populations in their countries within the context of the realities of the 21st century. I mean, to achieve, uh, you know, uh, conservation successes when we know human populations are doubling every 20 years in the country where we live, I mean, it's, it really is something wonderful. And uh, the fact that the Indians are uh, keen to initiate cheetah reintroduction in their countries is something that we need to celebrate. It means that they take conservation seriously. And, uh, you know, th this is going to create wonderful opportunities, not only for cheetah conservation, but for the conservation of the grassland landscapes where cheetah persist in India. So it's, it's very exciting. There's going to be lots of challenges ahead, but uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to share uh, my thoughts and ideas with you, Josh, and I hope that the audience uh, enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, Vincent. It was a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about and beyond, please log on to our website at and beyond.com.